Today, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. I'm preaching a series of sermons through the life of King Solomon. And we're now in 1 Kings chapter 3, and you can find this on page 523 of your pew Bible. I want to read 1 Kings 3, verses, verses 1 through 15, and then pray. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this people of yours? This speech pleased the Lord, that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings 
offered peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your insight and your understanding as this scripture passage rightly applies to us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this is that famous passage of scripture you probably heard about where God shows up kind of like a genie to Solomon and basically says, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. You know the stories that you see in Hollywood or in books where a genie comes out of the bottle and basically says, ask whatever you want and, and I'll give it to you. And this is where Solomon asked for wisdom. Now, the best way I'm going to for me to explain this passage of scriptures, I'm going to talk about three things today, and that is the pattern and the plan and the perspective. Now, the reason why I say pattern is because I want to show you a pattern in Solomon's life that's going to go from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 11 here in 1 Kings. And this pattern is important because it's going to help us explain and interpret especially this marriage that Solomon has with Pharaoh's daughter here in Egypt. And this pattern I'm going to talk about, first of all, is this pattern of going from Genesis, the book of Genesis, all the way to the book of Judges. Let me explain to you the highlights of this pattern. We saw in chapters 1 and 2 with Solomon that he is the new Adam, and he's the new husband over Israel. But you know what? Solomon is a better Adam. Because Solomon will kill the serpent. Remember, who is the serpent in chapter 2? It's Adonijah. He tries to grab for the nation. Well, he functions like a serpent, Adonijah does, and Solomon has him executed. So Solomon's a better Adam. And remember later also in the book of Genesis, after God kicked out Adam and Eve out of the garden, he exiled them out of the garden? Well, the next thing that happens is, is that Solomon will exile... Abiathar from the tabernacle in chapter 2. Also, later, what happened in the book of Genesis is that Cain killed his brother Abel. Then, in Solomon's life, there's a type of Cain figure. There's a Cain who murdered men and deserves the execution of, of justice. And that's what Solomon does. He executes Joab in chapter 2. Later, also in the book of Genesis, God curses the land. He curses the world with the flood, and He cleanses the whole world from that cursed of all creation starts anew. And also you see the same thing with Solomon. Shimei was a man who cursed David, and in thus cursing David, he cursed the land. He cursed the nation of Israel. Solomon has him executed as well. So what I did in the past sermons, I showed you this pattern going from Adam all the way to, to Noah's flood and using that as a pattern to see what's happening in Solomon's life in the beginning part of his rule. That was the first part of Genesis that I used to explain chapter, chapter 2. But if you fast forward to the last part of Genesis, who is the hero? Who is the godlike figure in, at the end of Genesis? And it's Joseph. And whenever Joseph ascends to the throne, becomes basically king of Egypt under Pharaoh, and he saves Egypt and the known world from that famine, 
with the storehouses and he, he takes them through the seven years of famine because he stored up so much for the seven years of plenty. One thing that Joseph did at the very beginning of his reign and his rule is that Pharaoh gave him a wife from Egypt. Joseph married an Egyptian girl whenever he first ruled over Egypt. And that was a righteous wedding. That was a righteous union because he is converting them over to Yahweh for that time in history. Egypt was converted for a time under the reign of Joseph. Therefore, you see here in chapter 3 that Solomon is going to enter into a Joseph time period where he is going to come into union. He's going to marry a daughter of Pharaoh. Also, Joseph, what did he do whenever he reigned? He had wisdom from God. He had wisdom of what to do, practically speaking, to carry the, the nation of Egypt through that famine and that hard time. Well, what does Solomon do here? He asked for wisdom. There's so much here that goes into play with this Joseph theme, having practical skills of wisdom and also even rightly marrying a daughter of Pharaoh or a daughter of Egypt. You can continue this theme and how it carries, this pattern goes for the rest of Solomon's life into chapter 11. Let me explain to you. What happened after Joseph? After Joseph comes the Exodus. God delivers the children of Israel out from the grip of Pharaoh. The very next thing you have in the narrative of Solomon is this debate between women of who does this baby belong to. And in that narrative, as we're going to get to next week, there's a lot of allusions where it alludes back to the Exodus experience. I'll explain that next week. And then... After that, after the Exodus, what happened after Moses? Joshua goes into the promised land, conquers the whole promised land, puts it under subjection. Well, from chapter 4 of 1 Kings all the way to chapter, chapter 10 is Solomon building the temple. That is Solomon's conquest of the promised land, just like Joshua had a conquest. Well, after Joshua, what happens after Joshua? It's the book of Judges. And what happens in the book of Judges? Everything goes wrong. That is, God's people rebel. God's people fall. And it, gets, it goes from bad to worse. That's what happens with, with Solomon in chapter 11. Everything goes wrong. He finally falls in love with way too many women. His heart turns from the Lord and all this. And things go wrong in his life in chapter 11. My suggestion to you is that you can see this pattern starting in chapter one of 1 Kings going all the way to chapter 11, using the Bible of Genesis going all the way to Judges to see this pattern in Solomon's life. And what I just told you gives you some glasses, some spectacles where you can look and interpret this passage of Scripture, I think, rightly. And that is in chapter 3, as several commentators I'm relying upon, look at this marriage of Solomon with this lady from from Pharaoh as a righteous thing. So that Solomon, as actually right now, as a righteous marriage, he is, he is benefiting the nations. He is being a salt and light to the nations. He's converting them to the Lord. 
Look at verse 3, and this is very important to interpret this passage as a lawful, right marriage. It says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statue of his father, except that he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places. What that's referring to is there's no temple that is built right now. It's not, sim- it's not saying that he's worshiping Moloch or worshiping Baal and these false gods right now. It's simply pointing out where he is worshiping the Lord. You can interpret this passage here positively. Because later in chapter 11, that's where it turns negative. In, in chapter 11, it says Solomon loved many women. And that's where it, he turns his heart away from the Lord. So this pattern I just explained to you helps to explain the righteousness of this marriage he has with this lady from Egypt and also that he loves the Lord at this time. And so what he is doing right now, we can, we can make some comparisons through our life and make some applications and learn uh, by comparison. Later, we can learn by contrast of what not to do because how he fell away for a time in his life. Not that he fell away forever, but he went through a, a rebellious time. Now, let's move on to talk about the, the plan. We talked about the pattern. Now let's talk about the plan. The plan is, is this. This is going to summarize this story here in chapter 3. The plan is this, is what's God's plan for your life? And the answer is this. God's plan for your life is to make you more like God. That's exactly what we see here. In this passage of Scripture, when you start reading in verse 4 and following, he goes to this place called Gibeon. He makes a sacrifice. The Lord appears to him. He asks for wisdom from the Lord. God gives him wisdom. And in summary, what's happening here is God is fulfilling his plan making Solomon more and more like God. Look at verse 9. I want to show you something that's important. In verse 9, he says, "Give." Solomon says, Give to your servant. Give to me understanding of heart, that I may judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now, this passage, what he says right here, is a key. It's a key that unlocks a lot of answers to questions that come out of Genesis chapter 3. Here's the question. What was so wrong about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Notice that Solomon is using that same language here. Lord, give me the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what happened in the Garden of Eden? God told Adam, you are not to have the knowledge of good and evil. From that tree. Here, Solomon is asking for it and God has given it to him. So, what's so wrong about Adam having it? And Solomon, right now, is asking for it and Solomon gets it. And the answer is this for Adam, it was not the time to have it. For, for Adam and that stage of humanity, it was not time to have the wisdom that Solomon is talking about. It was not time to have the knowledge of good and evil. Also, here's another question that this passage helps to unlock and open and answer. What is, 
what is the knowledge of good and evil? What does it really mean when the Bible talks about that? Well, this context answers that question. The answer is this. It means to rule like a king. If you have the knowledge of good and evil in the biblical sense, you make righteous judgments. You can oversee complex cases. You can make good discerning decisions. And you can rule over a nation. This helps make sense as to why Adam was disallowed, was forbidden to have it at that time because God did not want him to have that. He didn't have the capacity, the maturity to rule at that time. He had to wait on it. This shows you that God's plan, God's plan from the beginning was to make humanity more and more like Him in His time and in His way. But the serpent tricked Adam and Eve and and had them grab for that knowledge of good and evil too quickly, too early, out of time. But one day, God had always intended that one day humanity would have the time, the ability, the permission to grab for what that tree symbolized. Wisdom, knowledge, kingship, and rule. And here Solomon is asking for it. So looking backwards, this passage functions like a key to answer those questions that we ask concerning Genesis chapter 3. But looking forward also, this passage answers other questions or it deals with points us forward like an arrow. This passage points us forward and says that God has fulfilled and is continuing to fulfill his plan of making you more like him. Think of this. In the book of Revelation, when you go there, there's the tree of life mentioned at the end of the book of Revelation where you go there and there's, God opens a tree of life, uh, access to the tree of life that he shut off from Adam and Eve, and we have the tree of life. We have eternal life through Jesus Christ. But here's a question I'll ask you. Where's the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the New Testament? Where's the wisdom tree where you can take that tree, the fruit of that tree, and eat it and rule like a king, like King Solomon? And the answer is this. That tree is the cross of Christ. On the cross of Christ, above his bloody head where the thorns were, The sign read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's the cross, the tree of kingship, the tree of wisdom, the tree of knowledge. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have the keys to the kingdom of kingship. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, Verse 6, it says that Jesus Christ made us kings and priests to His God and Father. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, it says, he who, Jesus says this, He who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to Him I will give power over the nations, just as I have received from my Father. God's goal from Genesis to Revelation, the macro, big picture, is to take, is to take dirt... And make that dirt more and more and promote that dirt more and more like Him. To be like Him. That's what He accomplishes in Jesus Christ. 
And that explains why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden was forbidden for a time, but now for Solomon, he can take. Because God says, go ahead and ask me, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon is ascending. And then also Solomon's a foretaste of what, of, of what Jesus Christ accomplishes. Even in the very explicit way, the Apostle Paul brings up this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Christians were so immature in that church that they were suing one another and taking each other to court. And this was before all the pagans. They couldn't, agree, they couldn't make decisions among themselves and judge among themselves. And Paul says, don't y'all have wise men among you who can make judgments among you? You're taking this to, to pagans and, and arguing before pagans out there in the world. And Paul says this in verse, verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more to things pertaining to this life? Think of this, y'all, is that when you die, you don't become an angel. You become superior to angels. Some people think, oh, someone died, they turn into an angel and they're flying around in heaven. No, you become promoted above angels. This is exactly what the book of Revelation talks about. In the book of Revelation, when you summarize it, Jesus Christ ascended in the year 30 to the throne room in the highest of heavens. In the year 70, Jesus Christ takes His people and brings them with Him and ascends them to the throne room with Him. So they rule and they make judgments with Him and they rule as kings over all creation with Jesus. The reason why I'm mentioning those two ascensions in the book of Revelation, because you'll notice that the King Solomon is a prototype of that here in this passage. There's two ascensions that Solomon makes in 1 Kings chapter 3. First of all, he goes to this mountain in Gibeon. He goes there and makes a thousand offerings on this altar in Gibeon. That's where he starts. It's an altar of sacrifice. He ascends there for himself. He goes into a dream and God gives him this, this wisdom and this uh, answers his prayer. He, he ascends there for himself. Secondly, look at the end in verse 15. There's an ascension for the people. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Solomon awoke, and indeed, it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, of the Lord. And he offered burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. There's the second ascension. But he doesn't just go there and make an offering. He goes before the ark of the covenant, which will be in the holy of holies. And also there's a feast here for all of his servants. This is a beautiful picture and a summary of the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ ascends to the throne room in chapter 4 and 5 in Revelation. And then in Revelation chapter 20, Jesus Christ brings up his people to position him, position them to be with him on thrones. Here's exactly what you see. There's a movement from Gibeon to Jerusalem. There's a movement from the altar at Gibeon 
to the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. And Solomon stands before the Ark, standing with, right there in the presence of God. There's another question I have I'm going to pose to you and suggest an answer, and that is why. Why does Solomon offer a thousand burnt offerings here on the Gibeon mountain? Whenever you do the math with the chronology, there's a thousand years until Jesus Christ is born. In fact, it's exactly 1,016 years until Jesus Christ is born. So I think there's a possibility that this thousand offerings on Mount Gibeon seems to be an anticipation of the birth of Jesus Christ coming about a thousand years later. Now, I've explained this to you on the macro level of this big plan that God has of bringing us from dust to glory, making us more and more like Him. But let me boil it down to the micro level on a daily basis. How does God do this on a daily basis, making you more like Him? What God often likes to do is put challenges before you, obstacles before you, complexities before you, and God likes to have you figure it out. That's kind of what happens right after this. God gives him wisdom. He gives Solomon wisdom. And then there's these two women who are going to come in the next passage and fight about a baby. And Solomon has to figure it out. What's justice? He doesn't get a divine revelation of exactly what God wants him to do. He has to have the wisdom to figure it out. That's what you see right here in this passage. That's also what you see in the life of Jacob. I think that Jacob is a very good example of how a man has to figure it out. Meaning this, God wanted Jacob to have the birthright. Well, Jacob had to have the wisdom to know, when do I buy this birthright from my brother? And then Jacob had to have his mother help figure it out about how to get his father to bless Jacob and not Esau. They figured it out. And that he had to go and work with his crooked, uh, thievery-type uncle, who was a scoundrel, Laban, for about 20 years. And then he had to be patient and figure it out about how to get through that time period. And as he's coming back to the promised land, he sends all of his possessions over there to to satisfy Esau because he's scared of Esau. And God comes and wrestles with him. And God says this, you've wrestled with God and man and you've prevailed. You've won. Meaning this, listen, y'all, God's watching Jacob. He's passing that test. He's passing that test. And then God himself comes and wrestles with him. And God basically says, You did good. I'm proud of you. The point is this. God is making Jacob more and more like him through every obstacle, through every trial, and Jacob is figuring it out. I think this is also how it applies as well, is that oftentimes the Bible illustrates God as someone who is absent. What do I mean by that? I mean by by it this way. Adam, don't eat from this tree. I'm going to go now. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Next day, he comes back. Adam, what'd you do? I just told you not to eat from that tree. God was absent for a time. And in that time, Adam failed the test. The same theme, the same kind of idea happens in the New Testament when Jesus tells parables. He tells the parables and says, there's a parable of this man, this master. He had a bunch of servants. He told his servants to do something. And the the master went away for a long time. He was absent. 
But that master's coming back, and he's going to inspect what those servants did. And parable after parable is about a master coming back, while he's absent, coming back to inspect, what did you do with the time I gave you? What did you do with the talents I gave you? What did you do with the responsibilities I left in your hand? Did you figure it out? Did you do something with it? Did you do something with your life? Did you do something with the advantages in your ability? You didn't do anything? What? Or look, you made five talents turn into ten. Very good job. You figured it out. That type of struggle, that type of evaluation where God gives you something to do, He goes away for a time, and then He calls you home and says, what did you do with it? Think about that. That's how God grows you more and more to be like Him. He gives you something to do. He gives you opportunity. He gives you responsibility. This is also how you become more and more like God because, think about it, you have to be, get creative. Sometimes you sit around on Mondays or Tuesdays and say, what am I going to do this week? What does God want me to do? God's not going to tell you exactly what to do every day. God wants you to get creative in the sense of do something with your life. Make something. Produce something. Get an education. Go get a job. Serve someone. Figure it out. On the day of judgment, God's going to call you and say, well, let's look at what you did. Let's inspect it. That's the kind of rhetoric of the Bible. And that's what's happening here with Solomon. God gives him the wisdom, and then now God gives him an obstacle. God gives him a test. God gives him a very complicated situation. And, God, and we see that God's very proud of Solomon this time because he figured it out. He could discern who was the right mother, who was the false mother. This is how parents raise their children. The older your kids get, you can't feed your kid with a spoon. You gotta, they, they're responsible for feeding themselves. They become responsible for figuring it out. They become responsible for, for studying, for pursuing something, for being prosperous at something, having gifts to employ. The older they get, the more responsible they get. That's how God is maturing humanity throughout time. The older we get, the more humanity grows the more we have to figure it out. Well, that's the pattern I spoke about. Solomon's life hits the high points of Genesis to Judges. The plan that God has for you, the same plan that God had for Solomon. God wants to make you and Solomon more like him so you can make good judgments over complexities and obstacles and navigate through all the circumstances of life. Finally, I want to talk about your perspective, and that's your perspective of God. And that's what you learn about this passage. When you rightly ask for the right thing, God, more often than not, God will give you more than what you ask. Let me repeat that. When you, right, when you, act, excuse me, when you rightly ask for the right thing, God will often give you more than what you ask for. That's what happened with Solomon. God did not just simply give him wisdom. God said, I'm so proud of you for asking for this. I'm going to give you riches. I want to give you honor. I want to give you peace in your time. I'll give you for the things you didn't even ask for. Think of this. Our Father who art in heaven, give us our daily bread. God gives you so much more than your daily bread, even though that's all we ask for in our Lord's Prayer. Think of this. Our Father in heaven, forgive us of our sins. But your Father in heaven doesn't just simply forgive you of your sins. He justifies you. He declares you righteous. He adopts you as a child. 
He gives you so much more than what you ask for in that Lord's Prayer. When you pray rightly and for the right things, your God is so gracious. He will often give you so much more than you ask for. That's how generous your Heavenly Father is. And that's what He's doing here with Solomon. Let that encourage us to pray like Solomon did in his day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks, Father, for your generosity, for your compassion. And we pray that your word will improve our, in, our perspective of you with your compassion, your love, and your generosity toward us. And we give you thanks that you so often give us so much more than we ever ask. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.